Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter number 2. Revelation chapter 2. What a blessing to be in the house of the Lord. I'm thrilled that you're here today. I trust God's going to do a work in our hearts. Let me say thank you to all of our visitors for being here today. What a blessing to have you here. Um, Just to be frank with you, we're just kind of getting tired of regular old folks. So it's a blessing to see some new faces. And uh, don't tell them I said that, but uh, what a blessing to have you here today. Hope you feel at home in the Lord's house. Revelation chapter number 2, and I'd like to begin reading at verse number 8. Now, if you were with us last week, you know we began a couple weeks ago in chapter 1. and We're going to just try to mind the Lord this morning and uh, and begin our preaching here. Revelation chapter 2, verse number 8. The Word of God says, And unto the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. What a blessing to be in your house. I pray that you'd speak to the hearts of your people. Lord, if there's one here that is not your child, that's never been born again, I pray especially that you'd speak to their heart. Lord, tell them how you love them. Tell them how you died for them, Lord, how you care for them, how you wait on them even now, uh, and that you'd save them if they'd come to you. And I know, Lord, if you'll make that plain to their heart, uh, you'll do more than I ever could in whatever preaching, whatever feeble attempts I may make. So I pray that the Holy Spirit would minister to hearts this morning and that Christ would receive the glory. Bless this preaching. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. A couple weeks ago, we preached out of Revelation chapter number 1. And it was and has been and still is our intent to spend a little time going through these seven churches that are listed and detailed for us in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter number 3. But before we began that, we looked at a general message that the Lord Jesus gives to uh, the church or churches in Revelation chapter number 1, how He spoke uh, in His glory and how He spoke of His victory and how He spoke of His blessing upon them if they'd be faithful unto Him, if they would serve Him and live for them. and uh, He's encouraging them and invoking them to uh, serve Him and to live the life of Christ before this world. And then we spent a little time last week in the beginning of chapter number 2 and we began to look at the message to the church at Ephesus. Uh, there are a lot of things we could say about these churches. There are some that believe that what we have here is sort of a road map for the way the church has been uh, in the West here throughout uh, the past 2,000 years. And while I understand why people uh, think that, look that way, and uh, certainly there are some similarities, I think there's more to these churches than simply that. Uh, these churches were seven literal churches that existed. They had literal pastors, literal people, literal places where that they met, works that they were doing for God. And so these are messages that are given distinctly to those historical churches. I think also, though, it presents to us sort of a pathway uh, that a person's spiritual life takes once uh, apathy and disobedience sets in. You know, every one of these churches that is mentioned it always ends with this warning that, uh, you know, if you don't repent, I'm going to come, I'm going to take away your candlestick. If you don't repent, if you don't get right, uh, in other words, it ain't going to get better, it's going to get worse. I think that's part of the reason when you look at the church in the West, you see some similarities. Because i got news for you, the church in the West ain't looking better and better, she's looking worse and worse. She's not getting better by the moment, she's getting worse by the moment. And so when I think you look at Christianity in the West, you'll see that pattern. I don't know that you can necessarily apply that to every place where there's folks that call on the name of Christ. But I think even in your spiritual life and my spiritual life, our disobedience, our backsliddenness begins where? It begins the same place it did at Ephesus when we leave our first love. Uh, Listen, before you ever sin on God, you first allow your heart to grow distant from Him. Uh, Before you ever walk away from the Lord, you walk away first. Before you ever do with your feet, you walk away with your heart. That's what we see in Ephesus uh, in uh, the beginning of chapter number 2. But this week I want us to take a moment and I want us to notice, we've been trying to pick out the big themes from each of these uh, letters to these churches. Last week was, you've left your first love. There is a phrase that jumps out to me in our text this morning and I want you to notice it with me. 
Verse number 10 says this, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried. Ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now listen to what the Lord says. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. When I read through this letter to the church at Smyrna, I find one singular theme that the Lord gives to this church. And it is a command that He gives to them. Here's what He tells them. You're going to suffer a lot of things. You're going to go through a lot of things. You're going to endure a lot of things. But He says, what I demand of you is that you be faithful unto death. You know, the writer of Proverbs asks this question, Proverbs 20 and verse 6, a faithful man who can find. Can I tell you, we have an epidemic of unfaithfulness in Christianity today. We live in a time where everything's prioritized above the Lord and above His house and above the prayer closet and above the gospel. We live in a day where men want to be familiar with the Lord, but they don't want to be faithful to the Lord. Can I tell you this? There's a lot we cannot control, but one thing that we can control and one thing that only we can control is how faithful we are to the Lord. I can't control how fruitful I am as far as the, the, the product of my ministry, but I can determine how faithful I am. I can't control how phenomenal I am. I don't do this on purpose. I'm just this awesome. Somebody say amen. I, I don't control whether I am phenomenal. I, I don't control whether my finances are increased. There's a lot of things, Brother Ken, I cannot control, but I can control how faithful I am. I can't control what others do to me, but I can control how I respond to it. I can't control what the world does to me, but I can control how faithful I am. And so it's interesting to me that the Lord commands this church in the face of everything that they are dealing with. He says, listen, there's a lot you cannot control, but I command you this one simple thing, be faithful unto death. As we've read through these and considering these uh, letters as a pattern for disobedience, or uh, for decline in the life of the believer, it's interesting to note to me that as soon as they leave the first love, Brother Charlie, what happens? Trouble shows up. Now this isn't by accident. The Lord tells them He's wanting to try them. Now what's the purpose of trying them? He's wanting to purge them. He's wanting to perfect them. And can I say in our life, when we walk away from the Lord, when in our life when we allow disobedience to creep in, the first thing we can start to look for is what the Bible calls chastening. God doesn't chasten us because He's mad at us. He chastens us because He loves us. No more than you disciplined your children because you're mad at them. No more than you disciplined your children because you hate them. You didn't do it for that reason. You did it because you loved them and you wanted what's best for them. And as soon as the church departs from close, intimate fellowship with the Lord, God permits suffering to take place to draw them closer back to themselves. Now let me say this this morning. That don't mean every problem you or I have is caused by disobedience. But it does mean when problems enter our life, it's a good time to stop and take inventory and ask ourselves, could there be something that God is trying to get my attention about. The city of Smyrna and the church within this city was enduring fierce persecution. The city of Smyrna received its name from one of the principal commercial products of their day, namely myrrh. Uh, myrrh is a familiar uh, component and, and, and thing in the Word of God. It, was, uh, it, it comes from a uh, tree. The Greek word Smyrna is actually a word of Semitic origin. And the Hebrew root means bitter. It was a gum resin taken from a shrubby tree and it had a bitter taste. It was used as an ingredient in making perfume, as one of the ingredients in, uh, of the holy anointing oil for the priests in the Old Testament. It was, one, it was used for the purification of women. It was used for embalming. Myrrh was associated with Christ in His first coming. After His birth, the wise men came and presented Him with gifts. Now you know this, we just passed Christmas. What they give Him? They gave Him gold and frankincense and myrrh. These items spoke of royalty and of deity and of suffering humanity. When He was hanging on the cross, they offered Him to drink wine mingled with myrrh in Mark 15, 23. And Nicodemus, when he came with Joseph of Arimathea and took the body of Jesus to prepare it for burial, they brought with them an embalming mixture of myrrh and aloes. i got good news. I like this. I, when I read this, I like this. When Christ comes again, it talks about the gifts they're going to give Him and He'll be presented in Isaiah 60 and verse 6, Brother Ken, with gold and with frankincense, but they ain't going to give Him myrrh then. Why not? When He appears, He'll appear as the mighty sovereign, not the sufferer. 
So uh, myrrh is a, a familiar uh, you know, thing in the Word of God. It was used in a lot of ways. It's bitterness and it's used regarding things of, uh, associated with death and embalming, uh, equate it with and connect it with the idea of suffering and bitterness. So it's, it's most significant that the Lord spoke as He did to this assembly at Smyrna. And this church was in the midst of bitter sorrow and suffering. You know, in your life and mine, we're going to go through hard times. We're going to go through suffering seasons. Uh, if you've never had one, just hang on. One's probably coming soon. We all experience moments of suffering and moments of difficulty. And we cannot control very often those things, but we can determine we're going to be faithful in the midst of those things. And I think the Lord's message to those that are suffering today is the same message He had to those that were suffering then. Let's notice a few things about this passage this morning. First off, I want you to notice with me the description of the victorious Savior. Now in each of these seven letters, there is a different description that's given of the Lord Jesus. And really it's not a different description, but it is a part of a description. In chapter 1, there is a lengthy description of our Lord given in His majesty and in His glory. And each of these letters seems to pick up and emphasize and highlight a part of that description. You remember in chapter number 1 when the Lord spoke, He said, These things saith the first and the last, and he which was dead and is alive forevermore. Well, that same description is given here in this suffering letter to this church in Smyrna. Verse number 8, the Bible says, Under the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, These things saith the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Uh, let me say to you this morning, you know, when we're going through hard times, we think we need to know a lot of things, but there's really only one thing we need to be reminded of. We think we need to know why we're suffering, but that's really not what we need to know. We think we need to know what the extent of our suffering will be. How bad is it going to get? Really, that's not what we need to know. Uh, we really think we need to know when this suffering is going to be over, don't we, Brother Charlie? We, we want to know when's this all going to be passed? When am I going to leave this valley? But that's really not what we need to know. Can I remind you of the book of Job? The book of Job, that man suffered more than probably any other person aside from our Lord Jesus throughout human history. He in one fell swoop in about two minutes of time lost everything that was precious in his life. And then to follow that, he lost his health and he lost the uh, marital bliss that he enjoyed. Here he's left a broken shell of a man. Uh, and for uh, 30 something chapters, his friends come in and try to help him by beating him half to death with his problems. You know, sometimes we do that when folks is having a hard time. We, we beat them to death with their problems. They came in and talked about all this stuff and asked a lot of questions and never got any answers. But the Bible tells us that finally God shows up on the scene and he begins to speak to Job. And when he shows up, he doesn't tell Job anything about why he's suffering. He doesn't tell him anything about the contest that existed between God and Satan. He doesn't tell him how bad things are going to get. He doesn't say, Job, it ain't going to get any worse. He doesn't show up and say, Job, it's going to get a lot better. He doesn't show up and say, Job, it's going to be over soon. He don't tell him any of those things. Instead, he shows up and begins to talk about himself. You know what we need in suffering times? We don't need to know more about our suffering. We need to know more about our Savior. And we find this theme here in this letter to Smyrna. Uh, the Lord, when He describes Himself before He gives any instruction, He says, here's what you need to know. You need to know who I am and that I am who I have always been. In this, He describes Himself in three ways. One, He is the author of destiny. He says, I'm the first and I'm the last. Later on, He would use this language, or earlier on, He used this language, but again, He said, I'm Alpha and I'm Omega. These being the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet, but also in their, in their phonetic uh, alliteration and in, in the way that they're spelled out, they contain every single letter within the Greek alphabet. It's very suggestive. What he's saying is, I'm the beginning, I'm the end, and I'm everything in between. What he's saying here is this, just as it's said to us in Hebrews chapter number 12, he's the author and finisher of our faith. He's saying, hey, listen, fellas, I'm in control of this thing. I'm here at the beginning when your suffering starts. I'm there at the end when your suffering is over. I've written the beginning of this story. I've written the forward. And I've written the very last page. I'm in control of every bit of it. Can I tell you, your problems, whatever they may be, have not escaped the mind of God. He's in control of everything. I think we as Christians need to be reminded the Lord's in control. Uh, we look around at a world that looks like it's out of control and sometimes your life may feel as though it's spinning out of control. But there's nothing that's out of the control of God. He's in control of every bit of so He's the author of destiny and we need to be reminded when we uh, approach troubles and trials, when we walk into that valley, can I remind you, He's the one that created the mountains 
and He's the one that created the valley. That valley you're going through is one that He formed with His loving hand. He's the author of destiny. Number two, He's the comforter of the downtrodden. You say, preacher, where do you see that? Well, the Bible says this, these things say it the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. You know what it tells me? It tells me there's nothing I'm going to go through that He hadn't gone through. I remember back a couple months ago when all the, and I guess we're still in a pandemic. I don't even know anymore what's going on, but back a few months ago, they, they was interviewing uh, the governor of, of New York and, and he was talking about the, the pandemic and the risks and this and that. And he made an interesting statement. This has stuck with me ever since he was talking about, uh, people were talking about deaths of tragedy, deaths of sorrowing and, and suffering and, and, you know, suicides and abuse and this and that, and weighing that against the pandemic and the risk of death. Uh, as a result of this virus. And he made this statement. He said, uh, the, the, the worst result of the virus is death. He said, there's nothing worse than death. Death is the worst result. Now, first of all, I think there are generations of uh, patriots that, that uh, fertilize the soil of this great country with their blood that would disagree with that. But even beyond that, that's a very secular worldview. Can I say, there are things worse than death. There are things worse than death. But by His own admission, He says, hey, there's nothing worse than death. Can I remind you, Jesus has already been through death. He's went through it. He's come out the other side. And certainly there's a natural human fear of the unknown. And that includes death. But can I remind you that the Lord Jesus, He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He has been through death. He has been through suffering. Everything that we may experience, He has already experienced. The Hebrews writer said it this way in Hebrews 4, seeing then, verse 14, that we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. There's nothing you're going to go through that the Lord hadn't already been through. Can I go a step further? It doesn't say, Brother Ken, that He has been touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It says that He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Everything you go through, if you're a saved child of God, He says, I'm going to go through it with you. He don't ever send you through the valley and say, I'll see you on the other side. He says, I'll walk with you the whole way. And you know, this holds through the passage. I, I, I thought about the, the problems that are described, the, the, the trials that the church at Smyrna is experiencing. And every one of them, there's an example in Scripture the Lord Jesus experiencing. For instance, the Lord says, I know thy tribulation. In other words, troubles and trials. And it reminded me of Isaiah 53, verse 3, where it says, He about the Lord is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4 says, Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He talks about their poverty. He says, I know your poverty, but thou art rich. You say, did Jesus ever experience poverty? Sure He did. Second Corinthians 8 9 says, For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. Luke 9, 58, He Himself said uh, unto those that were around Him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay His head. Has it ever dawned on you? Jesus knows what it's like to run out of paycheck before you run out of month. Has it ever dawned on you that Jesus Himself knows what it's like to have something that you might desire and not have the financial wherewithal or means to obtain it? Has it ever dawned on you that His flesh, I'm not saying He was sinful, and you and I both know He never sinned, but He did have flesh like you and I have flesh, that His flesh knows what it is to be squeezed by your financial circumstances. He experienced poverty just like they did. Not only that, he talks about their persecution. He talks about these individuals. He calls them the synagogue of Satan that were opposing them and, and were trying to destroy their reputation. The Lord Jesus, He knew what it was to have uh, the Jewish individuals try to destroy and slander Him. The Bible says in John 1, verses 10-11, He was in the world and the world was made by Him and the world knew Him not. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. You say, preacher, you don't understand. There's folks talk bad about me. Never like they did Jesus. Never like they did Jesus. You don't understand, preacher. Folks is mean. Folks is unkind. They try to destroy me. They lied about me. Then you know just I'm talking about a million of what our Lord and Savior went through. Not only that, he talks about them being in prison. He said, the devil's going to cast some of you in prison. The Lord knew what that was like. I don't know if you knew that Jesus has a rap sheet, but he does. Isaiah 53, 7 says this, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb. So he opened not his mouth. It says in verse 8, he was taken from prison 
and from judgment. You can read all about it on the night that He was crucified. And then, of course, here's what He says. Be faithful unto death. The Lord Jesus, of course, knew what death tasted like. The Bible says in Hebrews 2.9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Verse 14 says, For as much then as the children, talking about uh, the children of mankind, the children are partakers of flesh and blood. He also Himself likewise took part of the same, that He, through death, He might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. What I'm saying is this, you're going through problems, uh, but you ain't going through nothing that Jesus hasn't gone through. Uh, preacher, nobody understands. Oh yes, somebody understands. I may not understand. Your, your friends and family may not understand, but the Lord in heaven, He understands what you're going through. He's the comforter of the downtrodden. And then I see that He's the conqueror of death. He said, was dead and is alive. And it ain't no trick to be dead. People do it every day. But to be dead and then to rise from the dead, that's unusual. You know, there's even been people, there's about seven of them throughout Scripture that were raised from the dead, Brother Larry. But you know, there's only one that ever raised himself from the dead. He said, I lay down my life and I take it up again. There's only been one that has ever mastered death. Hey, there's been several that have been rescued from death, but only one that has ever mastered death. And that's the Son of God. He mastered death. And you know, that translates to us. You say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, listen to what Romans chapter 8 says, verse 33. It says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died. He's talking about persecution. He's talking about folks condemning early New Testament believers and sentencing them to death. He said, who is He that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake, we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. i got news for you. This thing of suffering in Christianity, that's the normal course of things. That's not the unusual thing. We may be entering into a time in our national history where it costs you something to be a Christian in this country. But if we do, it ain't because God's fell out of His throne. It ain't because uh, Bible Christianity has broke down and fell apart. That's always been the case. The relative freedom and security and liberty we've enjoyed has been the strange thing. I, I, for thy sake are we killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. And then Paul says this, nay. Now what's he saying nay to? He's saying nay in the idea uh, that anybody can separate us from the love of God. That any troubles or, or problems or sorrows somehow means that God hasn't uh, taken care of us or doesn't love us. He says, no, that's not what it means. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. He'd probably go on to say not on a train or on a plane or in a box or with a fox. He says, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what it means? Uh, he's the conqueror. Nothing you go through, uh, nothing uh, in this world can separate you from the love of God. He's the conqueror of death. So he says, that's who you need to know that I am. Before he ever gives him any instruction, Brother Charlie, he says, this is who I am. You know, probably, and I'm not going to, so don't get excited, but we could probably stop there and you've got enough help to help you through your troubles. And so I ain't going to stop there. Don't get, don't get excited. Some of y'all should check and see what the wait time is at Shoney's right now. I, I ain't stopping, but I'm saying just knowing that would probably be enough to weather us through our trials. He goes on, he describes a few things to him to be a help to him. I hope they're a help to us. Number one, I want you to notice he then gives a word of or a word about perception. Verse number nine, he says this, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. You know the thing that blesses me, Brother Ken, when I read that is those first two words. He says, I know, I know. He says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're suffering. I know how you're responding to it. I know the pain you're experiencing. What does he describe? Number one, he knew their persecution. He said, I know thy works and tribulation. In other words, he's saying, you're going through some hard times. You're going through some suffering. If you read back, and I'll say a word about this in a moment, throughout history, there was a 
period of time in which the mighty arm of Rome and the mighty fist of Rome slammed down upon the fledgling New Testament church and believers were being thrown to wild beasts in the arena. They were being burned at the stake. They were watching their children and their spouses being uh, cruelly and unmercifully murdered in front of them for the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And There's so much wrapped up. That word, it's a big word, but man, it, it holds a lot of that word tribulation. I'm talking about this one, no small problems. They were suffering in a major way. They were being completely disenfranchised as a people. He hints at that here in a moment. He talks about their poverty. At this time in, in the history of, uh, of the church, it was, it was illegal for you to be a professing Christian, to make any kind of money, to be a part of the guilds that existed for a man to be able to make a living. And they were suffering as a result of it. I'm talking about they didn't just have somebody laugh at them. They didn't just have somebody lie about them. Somebody didn't say something mean on social media. I'm talking about they dealing with real problems in their life. I fear that much of the of the disarray of society today has existed or it has it has it has fermented in the total vacuum of any real hardship. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not one looking for hardship. I don't I don't rejoice in the idea of hardship. I don't want to suffer and I don't want you to suffer. But certainly listen, when we ain't got no problems in our life, we create problems out of things that should not be problems. We prioritize things that shouldn't be prioritized. We obsess over things that we shouldn't obsess over. When things get hard, hey listen, we purge some things out of our life. It's just human nature. And what they're going through here, it's not small problems, it's big problems. But you know, he says, I know what's going on. He said, I know everything that every Roman general's doing to you. I know everything. I know every thought. I know every, every evil wish and evil desire that floats through the head of the Roman Caesar. He says, I know everything going on. It's amazing to me. Every four years, one side or the other, uh, feels like God has done fell off the throne in our country. Uh, I mean, one side or the other. I, I, listen, I saw it. I saw it in 2008. I saw it in 2016. I've seen it this past year. It's amazing. One of these days, we're going to wake up and realize that we have elections in our country. And the fact of the matter is, there's going to be changes of power from one side to the other. Sometimes maybe legitimate, sometimes maybe not. But can I tell you this? Uh, nothing happens escapes the vision and view of God. There's nothing that happened. God knows more about it than those that are trying to do it. He knows every bit of it. Whatever may be produced, whatever may result in your life or mine, whatever suffering or trials, uh, and I'm not even talking about the political realm now, I'm just talking about the world system and the direction it's going. There's nothing, none of it but what God knows what's going on. He knew their persecution. Number two, He knew their deprivation. He says, your poverty. And then, I like this, man, because sometimes I need this. Sometimes I get feeling sorry for myself and God has to knock me on the head and remind me of some things. He puts in parentheses, but thou art rich. Here's what God's saying. He's saying, I know it matters to you whether you've got food in your pantry. I know it matters to you whether you've got grain in the storehouse. He said, but never forget that in my economy, in the things that truly matters, you are no pauper, you are a prince. You have everything you need. He knew. He knew what the bank account looked like. Remember, this is the very God that made the the bottomless, uh, the, you know, extent to the to the barrel of, uh, of, uh, of of grain and the cruise of oil in the Old Testament, and He knew exactly how much was in there, and He could supplement, and He'd give as much as He wants. God knows exactly what they were going through and what they were experiencing. But here's what He reminds them of. And we could say that, and we've already said it. But what He reminds them of is the things that truly matter in life. They are rich in. Uh, you know, the Bible talks about in the book of Hebrews those that uh, took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. I, I hate I hate to tell you this. We we have enjoyed this sort of, of worship of... Boy, I want to be careful how I say this. We've enjoyed prosperity in our country like we've never experienced. I mean, it's unreal, the prosperity we've enjoyed. And it's not lost on me the way that, that people suffer today. It's not lost upon me the, the financial struggles that people experience today. And I'm not saying they're not real. I'm not saying they're not meaningful. And I'm not saying something ought not to be done about it. But I'm just saying, we in our life have enjoyed prosperity like humanity has never experienced before. To such a degree that we literally, we, we our houses are full of junk that nobody needs. That nobody needs. We don't even know what to do with it. Uh, we don't even want to give it away so it can be somebody else's junk. We want to keep on to it so we have enough junk. We've just, we've got more than what we need. I hate to tell you, we may be coming into a time in the history of our country, we may be coming into a time economically where just the very fact of naming the name of Christ precludes you from being able to actively engage in the things that build wealth and build opportunity. 
Uh, the church at this time was not being just secretively, they weren't, weren't being shadow prejudiced against, they were being openly prejudiced against. It wasn't just a rigged system, they just kicked out of the system. We may be coming into a time that we experience the same thing, but can I tell you, none of it will escape the eyes of God, and at the end of the day, the things that really matter are the things that we are rich in in Christ Jesus. He knew their, their deprivation. Then he notice this, he knew their opposition. It says this, I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, there's sort of two ideas about this. Uh, there are some that believe that what he is doing is pointing out doctrinal error that was present in the body of the church at Smyrna. And that's entirely possible. For instance, one fellow described it this way. He said the church at Smyrna was harboring some form of extreme Judaistic error. The basic error at the core of such a trend is the error of failing to distinguish between Israel and the church. From earliest times in church history, attempts have been made to graft various forms of Judaism onto Christianity. The two systems are mutually exclusive, as Paul clearly recognized even before his conversion. That's why he persecuted the church. Yet in doctrine and in practice, the church has tolerated the alien Judaistic graft. Some wish to graft on law-keeping. Others fascinated by the ritualism of the Old Testament. Others wish to deny any factual distinction between Israel and the church and seek to make the one an extension of the other. Those propagating the heresy are said to belong to the synagogue of Satan. As God has His assembly in the world, so does Satan. The enemy sets up his groups to oppose the truth and to propagate falsehood. Satan was active along two lines at Smyrna. Within the fold, he was Satan, the adversary, the one who sets up heretical teachings in opposition to the gospel. Outside the fold, he was the devil, the accuser, the forger of lies and innuendos that inspired the pagan persecution. Certainly it is true that the early New Testament church had a problem with legalism in the purely doctrinal sense and usage of the word, trying to graft on to Christianity Judaistic worship. It's possible that it's talking about doctrinal error. And can I say this? Part of the suffering that the believer can experience and endure is when we don't keep the house clean as regards doctrine and truth in the body of Christ. However, I think and tend to believe that it's talking about not opposition from within, but rather opposition from without. I don't believe he's criticizing the church at Smyrna. I, I think, you know, the word blasphemy here carries with it the idea of slander and certainly has as always been true and is still true today. The church was surrounded by foes and those foes were tearing her reputation to pieces. The Jews living at that time were allowed to participate in the economy of Rome. However, the early New Testament Christians were not. While they should have found some help and some support and some ally in that community, as was always the case in Gentile nations, the early New Testament church did not. Whether uh, one is true or the other, I think there's an application of both. You know, the reality is this. Sometimes you live for Christ, you're going to face opposition. You're going to face folks that actively withstand your attempt to live for God. There's going to be folks that just by virtue of you naming the name of Christ that are outraged at your life and at your success. So we see that the Lord gives a word of perception. Number two, I want you to notice He gives a word of perspective. Look at verse number 10. He says, Fear None of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Now it's interesting, within this passage what you have is three different perspectives on the suffering they were experiencing. First we find the human perspective. It's misery is emphasized. Verse 10 he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. You know it's natural to fear suffering. It's natural to be afraid of hardship. It's natural to shrink away from difficulty. We've seen this instinct, this, this uh, natural inclination manipulated and exploited throughout society over the past year. It's natural for people to be afraid of things that might hurt them. But can I say, though, it is natural to fear, it is supernatural to have faith. What does He command them to do? He says, fear not. Fear not. Now, listen, I, if you think I'm fussing at you for saying fear not, I'm not. I, I'm just reading my King James Bible. He says, fear not. It could be about any number of things. It could be about our current situation in the world, but it could be anything beyond that. The context of it, he's not talking about merely calamity befalling you, but he's talking about the active persecution of those that would seek to destroy you. And can I say, we're living in a time when Christians likewise are yielding to a spirit of fear, even politically speaking in our world. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, things may get rough before Jesus comes back, but we have no reason to fear. The Lord's on His throne. He's in control. He's in control of all things. It is natural to fear those things which thou shalt suffer. Isn't it interesting? God's going to bring good out of their suffering. But they aren't focusing on the good. They're focusing on the suffering. That is natural to the human condition. 
we focus on it. The other day, I can't remember even what we were talking about. I think Lawrence had a cough or something. And uh, we told him, we said, you better cover your mouth while you cough. He said, I will, Daddy. I'll cover my mouth while I cough. Now they might throw you in jail for coughing. I don't know anymore. But I, but I said, if you cough, you be sure to cover it. It makes folks nervous, so you cover your mouth if you cough. He said, I will. And, and he coughed, and he didn't cover his mouth, so I figured I'd get after him. I said, you know, Lawrence, that, that cough's getting bad. We might have to go get you a shot to take care of that cough. <gasps> no, Daddy, I promise. I promise. I'm getting better. I'm, I said, no, no, no. Now, listen, I, I'm done talking about this thing. We're just going to take you and get you a shot. He said, well, it hurt. I said, well, yeah, probably. But we're going to get you took care of. He said, how many shots will I have to get? I said, oh, eight or ten, probably. <laughs> Buddy, until I, until I let him off the hook, all he could think about was needles. Whole car ride, he was asking about that shot. He never, he never said, good, I'm glad to get rid of this cough. He said, a shot? You know, that's human nature to do that. We think of the pain, but we don't think of the pride. We think of the difficulty, but we don't think of the blessing in it. The human perspective is to focus upon the hardship. But can I remind you, that shouldn't be the attitude of the believer. Our attitude should not be one of fear. It should be one of faith. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 1 says, God has not given us the spirit of fear. That spirit of fear don't come from God. Now, it's, it's natural to be cautious. I'm not criticizing caution. It's natural to dread unpleasantness. And I'm not saying it's wrong to dread unpleasantness. But to live in abject fear, to be a prisoner unto our fears or our phobias is not of God. He's not given us that spirit of fear. What has He given us? He's given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. You know, by the way, He goes on to say this. He says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me His prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. The direct context of that passage, when it says, uh, God hath not given us a spirit of fear, it ain't talking about going and getting shot. Amen? It's talking about affliction, suffering, uh, difficulty, hardship, persecution, and opposition. I got news for you. We need we need to get our head out of the sand. We need to get it out of the out of the dirt. We need to start looking like we're saved and on our way to heaven and rejoicing in the Lord, looking like Christ has the victory and living like Christ has the victory. I'm just telling you, this thing of being down in the mouth all the time that ain't of God. That ain't of God. You're saved by God's grace. Heaven is your home. Christ is your Savior. Victory belongs unto you. You ought to start living like that and rejoicing, having joy in your heart and in your spirit and not living bowed down beneath all the things the world seeks to foist upon you. So we see the human perspective. Number two, we see the satanic perspective. It says, Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison. So if the first one speaks of its misery, the second speaks of its malignancy. What he's saying is this, the devil has a plan and he does want to destroy you throughout this. One of the great mysteries in the Word of God is the way that God so flawlessly and perfectly balanced both the will of man and God does allow man to have free will. We make legitimate choices that God does not force us to make, that God does not corral us into making. God gave us legitimate Free will. When God says, choose you this day whom you'll serve, He's not making the choice for you. He's letting you choose. God gives us legitimate free will. And yet we also find satanic will in the Word of God. The devil has a desire and a design and a plan that he's seeking to perform and propagate on humanity. But you know, reigning supreme over all that is the divine will of God that's in control of every bit of it. But listen, the devil does have a plan for your life. He does want to destroy you. And He will if you allow Him to. You remember what our Lord said to Peter on the eve of the crucifixion? The Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. By the way, it doesn't say the devil believed that Peter was weak, but it says that the devil wanted to sift him as weak. He wanted to turn Peter into a hypocrite. He wanted to turn Peter into a turncoat. That's what he was trying to do. He was trying to destroy his walk with the Lord. Listen, you're, you're dealing with hardship and suffering in your life. I understand, but don't think that somehow you suffering puts around you a bubble of protection and invincibility that, that demands that only good will come out of your suffering. I know we always talk about when people are going through suffering. Listen, trust the Lord, God will bring good out of it. And He will if you'll trust Him. But understand that the devil is lurking around in your valley too. And if you allow him to, he can make a mess out of your life through it. I've seen a lot of people go through hardship and not come out of it better on the other side. Thank the Lord, I've seen a lot of them come out better on the other side. But I've seen a lot of them be destroyed by their problems. 
Why did that happen? Well, they allowed the devil to have his will and his way. So I see the satanic perspective, and then I see the divine perspective. We could say the human perspective emphasizes its misery. The satanic perspective emphasizes its malignancy. But the divine perspective emphasizes its ministry. Notice what he says. The devil shall cast some of you into prison that ye may be tried. Now, have you ever thought about that? The devil has no interest in trying us in the strictest sense of the word. The purpose in trying something is to sound the depths of its integrity. That's the purpose of it. It's to find out what it's made of. The devil ain't interested in what you're made of. He's not interested in finding out how strong you are in the Lord. That's not what he's trying to do. So when the devil casts them in prison, he's trying to destroy them. But here's what God's doing. He's trying them. He's perfecting them. He's purging them. He's making them what they need to be in his eyes. You know, in this little phrase here, I find a couple things. One, I find the reason for their trials. And what was the reason? Well, historically, we see two things that resulted from persecution. And by the way, this is true from when Saul of Tarsus mounted that horse and began to go after Christians all the way throughout the persecutions of Rome and even to this day in places where God's people are persecuted. It produces two things. One, the sanctifying of the people. It perfects them. It purges them. That's what happened to the church at Smyrna. I'm of the belief that the church at Smyrna is the only church that God didn't have no criticism for. Why? Because their their suffering, their trials, their afflictions have brought them closer to God. Uh, You know, the psalmist said it this way, uh, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now have I kept to thy statutes. Affliction can draw us closer to God. You know the second thing it does? Not only the sanctifying of the people, but the spreading of the gospel takes place where persecution is. Listen, Paul was an evangelist before he ever even got saved. You say, really, preacher? Now, I know some evangelists I don't think are saved either, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying he, he was doing the work of God even when he thought he was doing the work of the devil. Did you know that one of the ways that the gospel spread far and wide was when Saul of Tarsus began his persecution against the fledgling church? What happened? They were spread everywhere. They're dispersed. The name for it is the diaspora. They, they were scattered everywhere and they took the gospel with them. It's one of the beautiful things about the New Testament church. Hey, listen, one old fellow long ago, I ain't going to call him a church father because the Lord said to call no man father except the heavenly father. One of the old church dudes, is that okay? Uh, by the name of Tertullian made this statement. He said the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, every time the church suffers, she spreads. Every time the church suffers, it takes the gospel and the truth. And you know, that ought to be true in our life individually. When hardship happens, you know what it ought to do? It ought to produce a closeness to God and a sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know if God's getting the victory in your affliction? Are those two things happening? Are you getting closer to God? And are you sharing the goodness of God, His gospel, His truth, His faithfulness in your life? Chances are, if those two things are happening, you're letting God have victory in the midst of your trials. So I see the reason for their trials. Then number two, I notice the restriction of their trials. He said, you shall have tribulation Ten days. Now, there's a lot of dispute about what this means. You know, uh, it's possible it's referring to ten separate attempts to wipe out Christianity that were prompted by ten separate edicts of ten separate Roman rulers. In other words, each of these Roman emperors gave an edict uh, that forbid and outlawed Christianity. You can go through Nero in 54 and Domitian in 81 and Trojan in 98 and Antonius in uh, 117 and Severus in 195 and Maximum in 235 and Decius in 249 and Valerius in 254 and Aurelian in 270 and culminating with Diocletian in 284. You can go back through the history and it's possible that the Lord is referring to that. But then it's also possible that the ten days could even mean just the tenth persecution that took place under Diocletian which lasted exactly ten years. But you know, I think there's even a closer application we could make. Uh, Whatever the precise meaning of the ten days, it suggests at least that the persecution would be for a limited time. In other words, we'll leave it to heaven to determine which may be exactly the Holy Ghost is talking about there. I probably wouldn't throw my shoe at you if you disagreed with me and my perspective. But it does remind me of this. Whatever our trials are going through, they are only for a moment. There is an end in sight. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, our light affliction, which is but for a moment worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Every valley has a beginning. Every valley has an ending. You know, it reminds me that uh, whatever I'm going through, it'd be a lot worse but for the grace of God. It'd be a lot worse but for the mercy of God. God has restrained and restricted whatever suffering 
I'm experiencing. So we find in here a word of perspective. I gotta hurry. Can I hurry? Is that okay? Y'all quit. If y'all hurry up, I hurry up. I want you to notice there's a word of perseverance here. Here's what he tells them. He says, be thou faithful unto death. He says, if you are, I'll give you a crown of life. What do we find here? Well, we find out the key, the secret to perseverance in the midst of trials. First, the resource of the faithful. When he says faithful here, the word faithful uh, comes from a word that means to be convinced. Uh, in, In other words, Christ was not telling His suffering saints just to grin and bear it. What He told them was to depend on Him and to be convinced of Him, to let Him be their strength and courage. I've said this before, but I'll echo it again today. Faithful, our faithfulness relies on the faithfulness of God. Our faithfulness, if it's sourced in our will and determination, will not be very faithful. You know why? We don't have it within us to remain faithful. Where does our faithfulness come from? It comes from our faith, our dependence upon God to keep His Word and to keep His promise. Here's what He was saying. Trust me. Trust me. Keep serving me. Don't walk away from me. Don't turn your back on me. Don't give up. Just trust me. I'm in control of all of it. So we see the resource of the faithful. Number two, we see the responsibility of the faithful. He, he, he doesn't say, be thou faithful till it gets real tough. He doesn't say, be thou faithful until your family gets mad at you. I've seen this this past year. I've seen, I've seen God's people, I've seen the family get mad at them for going to church. Get mad at them for going to meeting. Get mad at them for, for trying to trust the Lord throughout this thing. He doesn't say just be faithful till your family gets mad at you. He doesn't say be faithful till you lose your job. He doesn't say be faithful until things let up. He says be faithful unto death. Uh, listen, I, I don't know if, if anybody told you otherwise they lied to you, but this thing of living for Christ, it's a lifelong thing. There ain't no off-ramp in living for God. We ought to be faithful unto death. And then I see the reward of the faithful. He says He'll give them a crown of life. The crowns in the Bible, there's five of them that are distinctly mentioned in the New Testament that are given for various things. I think one of the most misunderstood elements of New Testament doctrine, they are literal crowns. There's no question. You can't make them anything but literal crowns. If you read the Bible in context and interpret it in context and and interpret it literally, they are literal crowns. But what's the significance of these crowns? You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Revelation about those that are in heaven taking and casting their crowns at the feet of the Lord Jesus. And you know, the Bible even says when the Lord comes back that He will be crowned with many crowns. So what is the significance of these crowns? Well, it's the ability to take the life that we have lived for Christ and to bestow it and and to present it back to Him as a life that was lived for His glory and for His honor. You say, why does that mean anything, preacher? Because you do not want to be empty-handed in front of Him who has given and done so much for you. You want your life to count. That's what a crown's all about, right? It suggests that what you did was meaningful. And those that are willing to be faithful unto death, they'll be given that crown of life. And it's not the jewels in it. It's not the metal it's made out of. I, there's a lot about it. I know less about it than I do more about it. But it does suggest to me this, that we'll be able to say, you know, Lord, I never gave up on you. I never walked away from you. I had moments of weakness. I had moments of failure. But I died living for you. Be faithful unto death. And then finally, and I'll just mention this and be done, I see a word of promise. We've, we've talked about this last phrase, the promises that are given to these New Testament churches. And it's interesting, every one of them is given a different promise. He that, to he that overcometh, I will. For instance, last week, I will give him to eat of the tree of life in the paradise of God. Uh, later on, there's a place where it talks about that, that I will, you know, give him a, a, a white stone with a new name on it that no one knows. Another place it says, I'll make him a pillar in the house of God. And one of the things we observe is if you take all those promises, and put them together and read them together. You know what you have? You have a description of what God does for the sinner that puts his faith in Christ. He takes him and and He gives him to eat of the the tree of life, the paradise of God. He he gives him a relationship with Christ. He gives him a new name and righteousness. One day He takes him to, 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 to heaven, makes him a pillar of the house of God, makes him a part of that new Jerusalem that is coming down from heaven. And the very last one talks about how He'll reign with God about all of eternity. In other words, it's talking about what it means to be a Christian, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Now, when we looked last week, here's what we noticed. He's saying you've left your first love, but I'll give you the tree of life in the paradise of God. In other words, he's saying it'll be just like it was when you first tasted and saw that the Lord is good. What does he say here? 
Notice what he says. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now some people have taken Scripture and ripped it out of context here and tried to suggest that what it means is if a man's not faithful to death, it means he will be hurt by the second death. I don't think that's what it's saying. I think he's hearkening back to one of the things, one of the preeminent purposes of the salvation of Christ in the life of the believer. And you know one of the first things that God does, one of the one of the preeminent things He does when He saves a man, not only does He forgive him of sin, but He also delivers him from the power that death would hold over him. And I think He's reminding these believers, don't you remember what it was all about when Christ saved you? It was about being delivered from death and death having no power, no hold over you. Can I just say to you this morning, and you take it however you want to, a part of this whole thing of being a New Testament Christianity is not living in fear of death anymore. I'm not saying I'm getting on the next bus to go. I'm not saying i got a death wish. When you're pastoring, you've got a death wish. But I'm not saying i got a death wish. All I'm saying is, don't you realize when God saved us, one of the things He was doing was delivering us who were our entire life subject to bondage and fear of death. He was delivering us from that fear. What's the promise that He gives? Well, I think He reminds them of the victory that was provided at the cross. He reminds them when they got born again, death lost its hold on them. And yes, it's true that one day we will uh, be faced with death, but we'll not greet Him like a foe, but like a friend. Knowing that He's not the end of the line, He's just the doorway into the very presence of God. And then here's what He's doing. He talks about the victory that was provided at the cross. How does that tie to what they're going through? Well, I think he's mentioning the victory that prevails at the cross. He's saying to them this, when God saved you, He gave you victory over death. Now, lo, these many long years later, as you are facing the prospect of death, don't cast away your confidence, which hath a great recompense of reward. Don't cast away your confession and profession in Christ. Don't give up on Him. Yes, one of these days we are all going to face death. Don't you realize this whole thing of Bible Christianity was built for that? That's what God saved us from, was from the fear of death. Listen to how Paul describes it. I'll read this and I'll be done. 1 Corinthians 15, he says this in verse number 54. So when this corruptible, he's talking about the human body, shall I put on incorruption, Brother Ken, in other words, been given a glorified body, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up. In victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain. You know another way we might say that? Be thou faithful unto death. Don't give up. One of these days, I don't know if you knew this when you signed up for this thing of living life, but one of these days you're going to die. We all are. But don't give up on the Lord on the journey. As it was said in the Old Testament, don't fall out on the way to the Father's house. Keep serving Him. Keep faithful unto Him. Say, preacher, I'm going through hard trials and suffering. Nothing that the Lord don't know about. Nothing that the Lord's not been through. If you're saved by His grace, then it's nothing that the Lord's not right now going through with you. Don't give up on the Lord. Stay faithful unto death. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And if God has spoken to your heart, I think you ought to meet Him in this altar. And I think you ought to just speak with Him. Deal with Him. Let Him have the victory. Let Him have the authority in your heart and your mind. Uh, as the New Testament says, we ought to let the peace of God reign and rule in our hearts. Father, I pray that you bless this invitation. I pray that your people get help this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. Brother Alex is going to play. The altar is open. If God's spoken to your heart, won't you come up here and won't you deal with the Lord this morning? He waits for you. Why don't you come up and meet with Him?